Welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, a podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures from places all over the world. Uh, today, I have yet another guest on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Abadesi. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. <laughs> Fantastic. And you're currently in the UK, right? Yes, I live in London. What's the time there right now? Right now it's 8.07 p.m. And uh, yeah, it's nice. The seasons are changing, so it's always fun. Still looks pretty bright for 8 p.m. Yeah, it's funny because it was actually really dark and rainy all day. And then just as uh, the sun is setting, it seems like the clouds have broken through. It's quite poetic, actually. It's very beautiful. Poetic justice. Good, good, good. I mean, here, once once it's like 4 p.m. or something, it starts getting dark. Uh, It's 1 p.m. here in uh, Denver, Colorado in the U.S. But yeah, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate this. I'm such a huge fan of uh, your podcast with Michael. Uh, so it's, <laughs> yeah, uh, techish. I'll probably have a, a fan moment. Just so, just forgive me if I, if I faint <laughs> or something. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I, I always appreciate uh, you jumping in with hashtag Techish on Twitter, giving us your feedback after every episode airs, giving us your take. It, it's awesome. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I love podcasts, so and I love good podcasts. So obviously, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very flattered. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so one question I've always been meaning to ask you, and just for context, uh, Abedasu yeah. was born to a Nigerian father, mm. and and I know your father is Yoruba. Uh, you yes. you have Yoruba ancestry, mm-hmm. and I'm Nigerian as well. And oh, cool! A variation of your name that's common in Southwest Nigeria is Adebisi, like the show <laughs> in Oz. So when I saw your name for the first time, like Abedesi, I was like, is that a, like a Giannis uh, Adetokounmpo kind of, <laughs> kind of thing? Or that how it is? Um, you're not the first person to ask me this question. Um, when mm. I first moved to Nigeria uh, in 2000, 2001... Wait, moved uh, or visited? I lived there for a, a while. A lot of oh, people, when okay. I introduce myself, so for people who maybe aren't Nigerian, it's a very patriarchal culture. It's a very ageist culture as well. So mm-hmm. if you're a man and you're an older man, then you know ev- you know everything better than anyone else, like especially yes. women, especially younger women. Yes. And so when I used to introduce myself, uh, when I first moved to Nigeria, we were living in Abuja at the time. I'd be like, oh, hi, my name is uh, Abadesi. And in Nigeria, when you come back from abroad... People call you like Tokumbo, like you were born abroad, you spend time abroad. Uh, and if you're like me, the name has changed. <laughs> when, oh, right. Yeah. Well, I'm showing my age here. But when, when, you're, um, when you're mixed race like me as well, people call you yellow. Like they just call what? you yellow. Well, right. they did to me. And anywho, it was really funny because when I introduced myself as Abadesi, people would say to me, oh gosh, you don't even know how to pronounce your name. <laughs> Poor thing. You don't know how to say Adebisi. It's um, Adebisi. Well, she, and I was like, no, it's... <laughs> she's saying it, she's actually saying it pretty nice because I can imagine it in the typical Nigerian aunt accent. What are you talking about? You don't <laughs> even know how to say her name. Exactly. And, they, and they'll point at your father. What kind of child is this? <laughs> yeah, know? exactly, exactly. So people used to rinse me so hard. But no, my name is Abadesi. My dad just decided to riff on traditional Yoruba names and mm. make up his own name. So we all have have names which are kind of unusual. And so, you know, my own Abadesi, it's just an abbreviation. Like most Yoruba names ultimately are like a sentence compacted, aren't they? And they have a lot of those key words like Oloa meaning God, Ade meaning crown or wealth. And then we sort of connect them and bridge them together in different ways. So if you actually think of the name 
Abadesi, it has Ade in it as well. So it's just a, a compounded, abbreviated version of saying uh, our wealth increases. Oh, okay. Oh, that makes that that's actually on brand to what we'll talk about later about why we're going to tech. But <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> that's by the way. So you were born in Washington D.C. Yes. In uh, you know just a, a few years ago, three years ago, <laughs> uh, you were actually born to a Nigerian mother and a Filipino. A Nigerian father. Uh, sorry, and a Nigerian father and a Filipino mother. Uh, yes. That must have been very unusual, like when you were born, like. <laughs> yeah. A couple of decades I, ago, like, I have think, you ever talked to your dad or your mom about that whole experience? What happened? Were they students? What, what was the deal there? <laughs> so um, my parents met in the Philippines. My dad, he's now retired, um, but he, his profession was an economist and he worked for the International Monetary Fund. So International oh Monetary Fund, pressure, pressure. <laughs> World Bank, United Nations, all those kind of classic multilateral organizations. And he went straight from his PhD. Uh, at Oxford University into the IMF. And, you know, in the 70s, I guess this was the late 70s, he was on an assignment as junior economists were back then doing macroeconomic policy all around the world. And his assignment found him in the Philippines and he was working in the same office as my mom. And, you know, they fell in love and they got married. Wow. Wow. That must have been interesting. So wait, did your mom was working in the Philippines for the IMF as well. Yeah, she just worked in the office. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. I think now there's so many more mixed race relationships, but I can't imagine there were very many of them back then. And, you know, my dad managed to convince my mom to move to America with her. So she left her her roots behind in the Philippines. Um, Unfortunately, their marriage didn't last very long. um, So they split up when I was really young. They both Mm. sort of moved on to other partners since then. But I can't imagine it would have been very easy. One, being immigrants in a new country. So they were both you know, fresh off the boat, kind of living this new life in in the suburbs of DC. And then uh, to uh, just dealing with uh, all the challenges that young families face when they're just trying to trying to make it, you know, they're from that generation where you don't really talk about your struggles because you're still the fortunate ones. If I look at the other people in my extended family, when I go back to the Philippines, I hang out with them. When I go back to Nigeria, I hang out with them you know, we are the most privileged by miles in many cases. So, you know, my parents always focus on what they're grateful for and what they have to be thankful to God for. And they don't really focus on on any of the, the challenges they face. Oh, cool. So that means you actually shuttle between like Nigeria, the Philippines and the UK. That must be interesting. What's the, <laughs> and I, I'm not saying this to, you mm. know, pit, you know, one family against another, but what was the major difference between your family from the Filipino side and your uh, family from the Nigerian side? Maybe when you were much younger, uh, something that was obvious to you that you noticed that, hey, you know, maybe the <laughs> Nigerians are louder, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> or, it's funny like because... That. It's funny because there are actually very few differences. And I know it sounds quite surreal because it's such far away parts of the world, but mm. there's more more in common than there is different. So first of all, very, very religious families, very, very you know, Christian, God comes first, pray before every meal, church every Sunday, um, you know, any before any big trip, you pray for good luck, you pray for a safe journey. Mm. Very, very, very religious Preach. family. Um, secondly, food is everything always feeding people, cooking too much. (laughs) 
Uh, rice oh. is the basis of every good meal in both cultures as well, which is pretty nice. cool. Uh, family is very important. You know, you're always discovering aunties and uncles who don't even share your blood, but somehow they're your auntie and your uncle, your niece, no, your nephew. Your dad's friends are uncles, yeah. <laughs> you you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so there's actually more in common than what's different. And the biggest difference really is just on aesthetics because of course, you know, my Yoruba family are very deep chocolate brown, black color, and my Filipino family are Asian. <laughs> I mean, I totally relate to that. You know, I've been doing this, I've done like 72, 73 episodes of the podcast now. I've spoken to people from like almost 50 countries and I'm starting to see patterns that, hey, you know, we're not that much different, even though we may practice different religions sometimes and, you know, have different cultures uh, in the way we do things. But fundamentally, there's something that always unites like different cultures and different races together. Um, so you grew up in this like multi-ethnic household. You actually left DC to East Africa to go to school. How's that like? How old were you, by the way? So I was eight years old when my dad had uh, basically a promotion in his career. So he was promoted to be a country director, which is kind of like being an ambassador, but instead of for a country, he's representing the International Monetary Fund. Mm. And it was interesting because it was, it made me realize how little I knew about my African roots at that stage. I remember talking to my classmates and telling them that I'd be moving to East Africa. And they were asking me all sorts of like borderline racist questions like, oh, are they going to have electricity there? Are there going to be monkeys swinging through your windows? Wait, are you guys were eight? I was eight years old. Yeah. And the crazy thing about that was I didn't even know the answers because I had very, you know, ignorant, ill-informed views about what Africa was too. Up until that point in my life, I'd pretty much had a very standard middle class, you know, brown kid in America living in the suburbs lifestyle. And I realized that all of the stories I've absorbed through TV and through school were through the white lens, through that sort of lens where white culture is the dominant culture. And unfortunately, related to that are really baseless, you know, in terms of facts, like negative views of black culture. So I had no responses to that. And I remember asking my dad, like, oh, these are all the things that my friends were saying. And he was so angry, you know, he and he said, this is exactly why we need to go. You need to you need to be somewhere where everyone is black. And you need to, like, learn that Africa is an incredible continent. And yeah, it's better than America. There's so much more that it has to offer. And so, yeah, that was really cool. So anyway, I arrived. One of my most vivid memories I still have now, decades on, is um, being really hungry in the drive from the airport and asking my dad if we can get a drive-through Happy Meal. I really wanted a drive-through Happy Meal. And my dad's like, oh, there's no McDonald's here. And I was like, okay, well, Wendy's or Burger King will do. And he was just like, no, there's there's no fast food here. And my sheltered American child brain was like blown. I was like, what do you mean there's no fast food? And slowly over the next few weeks, I started to come to realization of what it's really like to live in a country that is less economically developed than America. You know, we had one TV channel. There was no cable TV. I was like, how am I going to watch Family Matters? How am I going to watch Family How am I going to watch all of these shows? I I love, you know, where's Nickelodeon? Where's all of that? Um so it was a real shock to the system, but the most incredible thing is that I didn't miss any of it really. You know, everything was different. So you got I acclimatized uh, like very quickly that? because really? I think when you're that young, really what you want to do as a child is just be entertained. You know, you just mm. want to explore your curiosity. And it was just amazing to be in this new country and like new new climate. The beach was a very short walk away and 
we used to go to school very early. It's, it's so hot in that climate that school would start around seven, but then it would end by noon because, you know, they don't want to keep kids in the hot classroom too late. This was at the yep. international school in Dar es Salaam. So we pretty much had, you know, six hours till sunset to run around. And I just have honestly the best memories of spending my childhood there. I feel very privileged to have been taken out of suburbia and given this opportunity to, to live there while I was young. And after I was in Tanzania, uh, my dad's job again transferred us to oh, wait, before, Nairobi. Before, before you talk about that, like yeah. I, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned about you know having a certain perception about Africa based on being a product of your environment, right? And it's yeah. funny you say that because I was talking to Garrett last week and he grew up in white suburbia in Pennsylvania and he didn't really know anything about the rest of the world till he joined the army. And when he joined the army, that's when he got to interact with people of different races. You know, yeah. he, he got posted to Osaka, Japan and all these oh, places. Cool. That's where he got to like, when a lot of people grow up in a particular environment and they are being like molded, they see the world just in one uh, particular light and not everybody is lucky enough like to experience all these different phases and all these different cultures. Do they still have a responsibility like when they get older to be able to be tolerant to people who don't necessarily like look like them? Because I'm getting into something here because um, I guess, and this is not making, you know, a case for, you know, the stereotypical straight white male and things like that. Uh, People who grew up in a certain environment, they've lived there for 30 years. There's this maybe sense of superiority or whatever. They really don't see the need to acclimatize or maybe don't even have the opportunity to acclimatize with people from other cultures. Mm. When they grow up and not having that experience to go to East Africa like you did, not having that experience, how much of a responsibility do they have to also like be inclusive in their dealings with the world? Yeah, I think that's a, a really a, great it's question. It's a ba- balancing act, right? I think it's a great question. I think... I think just because one has not had the opportunity to leave the place where one was born or where one was grown up, and let's say that's a very homogenous, closed community, I don't think that that would necessarily guarantee that someone in that community would be closed off to building connections with with different people and different identities. So I think that's like the first thing I want to say, like we shouldn't assume that someone is going to be like narrow-minded just because they haven't had a lot of experiences. And um, the other thing that I'd say is I think there's a lot of research out there that shows the importance of empathy. So this is this idea that to really truly form a an honest connection with someone, you have to be able to appreciate the differences between you and you have to be able to take that leap of faith where you can put yourself in their shoes and and perhaps imagine that they might believe different things and experience different things and care about different things. And I think what's beneficial about exposing yourself to other cultures and other people is that having empathy becomes a lot easier because suddenly you have all of this incredible data. So you don't need to take that leap of faith. You don't need to use your imagination. You know, you've, you've been to a Muslim country and you've seen people praying and, and, you know, wearing hijabs and stuff like that. Or you've been to Southeast Asia and seen people, you know, eating with their hands or eating with chopsticks and, you know, toilets are designed in a different way. So, you know, it doesn't take your imagination anymore. You, you've just witnessed it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like, Empathy is always going to be really, really important. And it's easier if you've, if you've experienced lots of things. Perhaps it's harder if you haven't. But I think we should always, always, just on a level of human decency, be willing to have empathy for others. 
Makes sense. That's a perfect answer. And I just said that to pull out the real Abadesi for a second to get to introduce you guys to her and what she's about. But that's besides the point. Spit out the red pill real quick. Let's go back to the blue pill. So you you moved from East Africa and you eventually went to boarding school, right? In the UK. Now, obviously, you know, typical Nigerian, when you're sent off to boarding school, you must be bad. So what did you do as a kid? to make your dad so angry to send you (laughs) off to boarding school? That's the stereotype, right? (laughs) That's a really funny question. Um, It's actually, like, it wasn't wasn't even that. It wasn't even about that, really. It was just the fact that we had moved to Abuja and I was just bumming around for a few months. My parents needed to find something for me to do. My dad had been placed on a secondment with work given, you know, certain allocation of funds to support, you know, relocating the family and getting everyone set up. And by that point, my older siblings had already started college. My younger siblings were still at school and the only school in Abuja. So for people who don't know, Lagos used to be the federal capital and then there was a change. So Abuja became the the federal capital. But at this stage, 2000, it had only been the capital for what, like a year? I think the uh, the changeover happened like in 99 or something. So um, I think it was, it was earlier based... than that. I think it was like oh, okay, great. Okay, maybe. So um, sorry, sorry, Nigerian historians. I'm sorry. But um, yeah, the international school went up to age 12 mm. or age 13. And I think I was 13 going on 14. So then it was just like, okay, well, she has to go to school somewhere. And it just became this like long debate, like, okay, where will we send her? There was a boarding school in Kenya that some people recommended, but my parents weren't sure. And then it came down to where can we send her where there's a relative we trust within driving distance to keep an eye on her. (laughs) Oh, that sounds very Nigerian. (laughs) Yeah. And so I came to England because my uncle was only 40 minutes away from my school and, you know, he would drop me there and would come pick me up whenever there was holidays or I'd go back to Nigeria. (laughs) Are English boarding school, do they live up to the hype? Like what we see in the media, like <laughs> discipline, like uh, what, what's the name of that Alan Turing movie uh, that oh, they ran gosh, an all-boys boarding school? Uh, I, I always like to think of Enid Blyton and Mallory Towers, the, the, the series of novels. I'd say that my school was pretty similar to that. I mean, having never been in that that privileged sort of environment. I mean, of course I had been privileged before, like being a diplomat's kid is a very privileged life. And, you know, I was going to international schools and countries where I could see the local kids going to a different school and having a very different educational experience. But when I moved to the UK, for me, it was just like a crash course in, in English culture and British culture. I think I'd only ever been to London like once or twice before. And then suddenly at the age of 13 going on 14, I, I was living there not seeing my parents, you know, three months away from home. And boarding school is um, it's definitely not for the faint-hearted because you don't actually get that much support. I know it sounds crazy, but, you know, the, there, there's a bell in the morning for breakfast, but it's up to you to, like, get up, get dressed, get showered, tidy your room. You get really? in trouble if you don't. It's a bit oh. like the army, I think. <laughs> this, this must have been in the UK. I mean, Nigerians listening to this had a totally different experience with Nigerian boarding schools, I guess. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, then you like, uh, you go for breakfast, you have your lessons, you have break or whatever. My school was an all-girls boarding school because, you know, as I mentioned before, very religious, very strict parents. They didn't want me around the dangerous influence of boys. Um, but 
it was just interesting for me because, you know, I, I wasn't like a tea drinker when I arrived. Like I, mm. that wasn't like a part of my life. And then suddenly people are offering me cups of tea left, right and center. And also sports, like there were so many sports that I had never played before. And we all know when you're at school, sports are a big part of the curriculum. So I suddenly found myself like on a hockey field and like the only hockey I'd ever seen was either street hockey, like the movie Mighty Ducks, which is awesome, or ice hockey. And I was just like, what the heck is this? And I also just remember always being like really cold, always being cold. Um, so yeah, it was it was quite surreal, but I'm quite grateful to have had the opportunity to be independent uh, and grow up. Yeah, looking back at your your background, it's almost like you had such a rich history. You lived in three, four countries by the time you were like 13, 14, mm. 15. You went to boarding school. You had the opportunity to like think for yourself at such an early age. And you still had, you know, this privilege of being like, uh, a diplomat's kid. Did you look at it as going through that experience when you were a teenager? Did you recognize, you know, the richness of your experience at, at the time or you were just like, eh? Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Um, I feel like the older you get, the more you're grateful for, or at least if you're doing it right. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what's interesting about being in international school and being uh, in the diplomats kind of family is that everyone around you is also like that. So you start to believe that that is the norm and that is normal. So, you know, moving every few years, you're surrounded by people who have also been moving every few years in a similar way to military families. So you, because you're always around people who are like you, you fall into that trap of being in a bubble where you then project that onto the rest of the world. And you're like, oh, everyone lives like this. And it was only when I came to boarding school where I realized actually there was like a fraction of us who also like me had moved around a lot, but a number of people had only ever lived in the same part of England their whole life. And, you know, many of them not far from where the school was located. Um, And as I got older, especially as I started working and I started realizing how much I earn and how long it was going to take me to pay off my student loans, I started to realize I don't think it could ever be possible for me to create the life my parents created for me for my children just because so much has changed. And also, um, you know, I'm not on that fast track path, working my way up the ladders of a huge organization. You know, my dad only worked for one company his entire life. Wow, really? And things have changed so much since then. Uh, but yeah, like as as I am here now talking to you from London, reflecting on everything I did, I realize how grateful I am for that and what a unique experience it was for that. And I think, you know, would I would I do the same for my children? And it's actually really interesting because I think while I am able to appreciate the the value I gained from that life, I think we have a tendency as human beings to look back on the past with rose-tinted glasses. And there's actually a lot of complications that comes with living a life where you're moving around all the time. And, you know, if you look at research and what child psychologists say, what children really need is stability. And I think for me, being young, I didn't really mind. I didn't really notice. But if you talk to, you know, some of my older siblings, it's not fun leaving your best friends behind every few years. And even the last time I moved, I remember thinking, you know, this is before Facebook. So when you say bye, it's like bye forever, unless you want to make really expensive international calls, which I used to do and really annoy my dad, or send letters that take six months to arrive. So so it's interesting. I think I think it is it is cool, but then it also definitely has its drawbacks. And maybe I just don't focus too much on those because uh, there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> Besides like, you know, things like leaving your friends and, you know, moving too much, was there any specific experience that was not as pleasant, like in all those places, uh, be it Kenya or England or in your home country, uh, Nigeria and Abuja? Uh, I think I think 
as I get older, so I got um, I got married last year and it was really fun sort of planning all of that and, you know, involving all of the the cousins and and family members, my sister that I'm that I'm closest to, and as I as I connected with my extended family over that process and over that celebration and and continue to over time, it it dawned on me how much of their history I missed because I wasn't in the same country as them. If that makes sense, you know, I think in some for many people their extended family are a drive away or a train ride away, but it's really hard to stay connected to what's happening in your extended family if you're an eight hour, you know, $1,000 flight away. So I think the cost is that you are quite isolated from, uh, you know, other people that you care about. And, and to connect with those people is very, very difficult because there's that physical barrier. Got it. Got it. Uh, you talk a lot on your podcast about attending LSE, the London School of Economics, obviously, yes. because your dad was in economics. But before that, before you, mm. you know, I don't know if you were cajoled or volunteered or uh, encouraged to follow in your dad's footsteps. What did you want to do when you were like a teenager or a kid? Did you have like a dream? <laughs> what, what do you remember enjoy doing? Like a lot of people, you know, were artsy kind of. Yeah, kind that's of a great were, question. Like, hustling baseball cards, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh gosh, I wish. Um, I think a lot of people from black and brown families, immigrant families, will empathize with like the pressure that we're under as almost from like the day we were born to follow a path that has been written while we were in the womb, if not before. I write, I talk about this in my book. You know, I, I didn't know what my own opinions were until I battled through to find them throughout my twenties. Um, so yeah, like when I was in my teens in an ideal world, I always wanted to do something more creative. I wanted to go to a performing arts boarding school. Actually, I, I petitioned unsuccessfully uh, to be <laughs> sent you to your dad. <laughs> yeah, my dad, yeah, with the help of my stepmom, she was on that my is. side. But you know how patriarchal households work. Yeah. Uh, the man wins. But um, yeah, I really wanted to. I wanted to be a performer. I wanted to be an actor. I just loved always um, like the escapism that came with playing make believe and. I was also conscious of the fact that there weren't really that many black and brown actors out there. Um, but my dad wanted me to have a more stable career. Um, and so that never really happened. <laughs> got, it, got it. I mean, looking on the bright side, you know, I could see or I can see some of those aspirations resonate in the things you do today. Like I watched some of your videos, which with your, where you were like speaking at events and things like that. Like, wow, like she's performing i don't think i'll be able to like prance around the stage with that much confidence <laughs> and like communicate with such ease and things like that so and i actually found an old video of you like auditioning for mtv or something like that oh and yeah I, I, that's like, like nope. seven years old <laughs> yeah this has to be saved I'm like <laughs> so even after college obviously you still had aspirations of kind of like working in that entertainment industry kind of thing but you went to the London School of Economics, you eventually graduated, you worked for the Financial Times, but there was a pivotal moment that made you leave that whole economics world and want to go into tech. Like, what was that? What happened? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. When I was at university, no one really told me about startups. And I guess because I wasn't aware of them through my own experiences or my own close circle, it wasn't really a world that I thought had opportunities for me. 
of course I knew about tech. We all knew about tech, right? We were using the products every day, but I couldn't really connect the dots between myself and my experiences and, and that industry and breaking into it. And the reality is I graduated in 2009 and the economy was not great. And my my attitude when I left university, I mean, I was fortunate to get an internship writing at the Financial Times, but I always knew that was going to end. And my attitude was like, just get a job because I had rent to pay. I had bills and, you know, my, my student loan debt. So because I had an economics degree, I was able to get a job in the city working for a financial publishing company. And the whole time I was there, I just had this like niggling feeling in my mind that like, am I going to work here forever? Like, is this really what I'm going to do? And I knew that it wasn't the case because I wanted to do something that I just felt was more purpose-driven because I really mm. took that job just to get a job. <laughs> I was like, secure the bag, get money, done. But then I was like, okay, so now I've got money, but I think there's more that I want out of a career. I think I want to do something interesting. I want to work with like young people. I want to work on exciting things. And I think the spark that really kind of started the flame burning was watching The Social Network because it dramatized Mark Zuckerberg's, uh, you know, rise building Facebook. And I just suddenly realized, wow, so they started this idea in college, in their dorm rooms? This is incredible. So I was like, right, I want to get into tech. I didn't realize that you could just have a cool idea or work really hard and get into tech and build and build things. Uh, and so that's that's kind of what motivated me. And I just started like working my network. I saw that Groupon I, I was growing really fast. I was reading about it in the news. The founder was on the cover of Forbes. It had been valued as like one of the you know most valuable startups in the world, the fastest growing company in the world. So I was like, okay, this is a rocket ship. Let me get on it. And that's how I, I got into tech. And you know, 10 years later, <laughs> rest is history. So you leveraged on your network to get into tech. Was there, were there other things in your life that you think gave you an edge? Maybe your education, the type of school you went to, uh, just for listeners who might want to get into tech, even though the game might be different 10 years later. But Yeah, I think it's a lot easier now. It's still not great. This is why I do the work that I do with Hustle Crew and Techish. Mm. Unfortunately, in tech, there is a bias towards hiring what we already have on the team. And, you know, a lot of the teams are people that have gone to specific universities, usually like Ivy Leagues, Russell Groups. And if you think of how society is structured, you know, demographically, the people that go to those schools look the same. They're like upper middle class people, you know, from white families. And if you think of how those universities select students, it's almost like a system where there's also then very specific schools that tend to feed into those universities. And it would be almost cruel for me to deny the fact that the credentials on my CV didn't open doors to me. It'd be cruel to other people who are as smart and as driven, but don't have those credentials and, and haven't had those opportunities because I know it has. And um, I think about this a lot, you know, because it's like, yeah, I am a, a black woman, but I'm not representative of like the typical black woman if you if you go by numbers, if you go by the average. And so absolutely it was it was beneficial 
for me personally to have gone to LSE, but also even to have gone to boarding school because I just knew Mm. all of those things that feed into culture. You know, when people make small talk with me before the interview starts and reference the fact that they've just come back from skiing. Oh, I I know what they're talking about. I've been to that little random village in France or whatever. And it's little things like this that people judge you on. And ultimately recruitment is judging. You know, it's Mm. like, I'm judging whether or not I like you. I'm judging whether or not you deserve to be here. So yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, you know, bias still plays a big role in how we make decisions. That said, if I were trying to break into tech now, the credentials that I could use to my advantage would be communities because communities have become the gatekeepers now. You know, employers come to me, Hustle Crew or Michael, my co-host of Techish, People of Color in Tech, and say, we know that the research shows diverse teams create innovative, more productive companies. So how do we access candidates from underrepresented backgrounds? So like, that, you know, that, 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 that right there also, like there, mm. there are some conspiracy theorists who also talk about like, is there a right reason to do the wrong thing or is there a wrong reason to do the right thing? Like these companies, some, some of them like treat it as a quota, like, Hey, you know, yes. like, let's just get, let's go. I mean, I schooled in DC, right? So I saw it all the time. Come to DC, go straight to Howard. Let's get some black people in the door. And- <laughs> Just yeah. give them internships and, you know, make our diversity numbers good. Some people say it's a good start. Mm. Some people say it's just whitewashing. They don't mean it. Some people say, I'll take it. You know, you build from there. It's the same thing that happened in the FBI where Black agents started as drivers before they were made actual agents. What do you say? Is there a right reason to, is there a wrong reason to do the right thing? Mm. Probably there is, but I guess I would be focused on on the outcomes, not the intentions. Because mm. for me, it's about there is a real threat to the future of humanity as I see it and to the well-being of society if the people who build, design, and manage tech products don't represent the society using these products and being altered by these products and being ape- affected and impacted by these products. And that's why I feel... The will kill us first, huh? <laughs> Probably. Um, But yeah, so I think when, when I think of why it's important for us to be in the rooms, you know, in these offices and, and participating at every level and having influence at every level, I'm thinking of the end goal. And that end goal is that, so for example, in the case of autonomous vehicles, which according to a report by Georgia State University, don't recognize dark skin, I can make sure that before those autonomous vehicles hit the road, <laughs> they can recognize dark skin. I, now, I if, you're, if you're hiring me just so you can put a black woman on your homepage, fine, as long as I still get to make sure that autonomous vehicles don't run me over run when they hit the road. So, and, and, um, th- and those things are real, right? Because I'm uh, sorry to cut you short. Like, those things it. are pretty real because sometimes, you know, people, you know, the stereotypical maybe straight white male or whatever seem to think that, underrepresented minorities are making such a big force, but it is a big thing. Like I remember uh, where I had worked previously, uh, we wanted to finance this client, this particular small business. And I think he was from Somalia or, or something like that. And he bought this car. He wanted to like get a car or a truck or something. And, you know, we financed the whole thing. And, you know, when the guy got it, he was like upset that the vehicle didn't have a CD player. So, okay. and everyone in the, and he was talking about how he had to return the vehicle to the dealership and get one with the city player. And everyone was like, look, it took us a month to get this transaction <laughs> through. And everyone didn't understand. But me as an African, even though I'm not Somali, I went to talk to him and he explained to me that, hey, that 
he's from Somalia. The music he loves isn't on Spotify. Right. The music he loves, Somali music, isn't on Apple Music. And what he right. does is that his cousin sends him CDs from Somalia and he plays it in his car and that's his only connection to home. But that's Amazing. something that no one else can like even start to associate with. Like you can't even function on that level. So imagine having Somalis like as part of your staff, things like that get understood a lot more quicker and better. So to Absolutely. build the overall like company culture, just to your point with, to, with what you were saying. Absolutely. Uh, just, just a short and these are the ago. things that you miss. These are the things that you will miss. And these are the customers that, you know, aren't going to buy your product just because you haven't even considered their needs. And I think, yeah, I think that's a great example. Yeah. So ultimately you, you went to like a whole bunch of companies, like coming back to your life, right? And you worked yeah. at Groupon, you worked at Amazon. I think you eventually worked at Prada Hunt. Besides mm-hmm. the lack of diversity, was the industry everything you thought it to be, like watching social network? Was it as glamorous? <laughs> uh, I mean, you can you can remove Amazon from that conversation, but everything else. Was it as glamorous? <laughs> was it as like you were going to the gym and from the gym you were going to work and from work you vested your stock options? And, I know, right? Know, oh, if only, if only. It's so funny because <laughs> I remember when the group, when Groupon IPO'd and, you know, you get so excited, like, you know, it's a once in a lifetime experience to some extent, like to be in a company that, goes public. And I remember the day that it debuted on the stock market, I think the share price must have been around $16. And we all quickly did the maths, got out, you know, okay, 16. Okay, great. I was like, wow, I'm going to like clear a huge chunk off my student loans. This is amazing. Like, boom, debt-free life. Let's go. And then by the time my my shares vested, the share price was $4. (laughs) Well, after the lockup period or something. <laughs> exactly. So uh, because they were restricted stock units, I wasn't actually able to do anything with them until a year after the IPO. And I had to stay with the company that year in order to get them. And yeah, by the time I left, you know, it, it was a quarter of what I thought it could be. And so that was quite depressing and, and sad. So it didn't quite work out like the social network in that sense. But to be honest, when I think of my friends, you know, my closest friends, uh, don't really work in tech. Um, and I, I think I, I am really fortunate because in tech, you just get crazy perks that other industries don't give you. You know what I mean? Mm. Like when I think of product and cause we're a fully distributed team, we only get to meet, you know, once or twice a year, every time we do it's somewhere incredible. Like, you know, we've been to Tahoe. Why you say amazing... fully distributed? Everyone works remotely. Exactly. Okay. Um, so people work from home, you know, in so many different countries, India, Bulgaria, um, UK, France, So it is pretty cool that you then get to, you know, go stay in this cool lodge and then get all expenses paid ski trip or, you know, go to LA and like stay in this cool house in Beverly Hills and then have all expenses paid Laker games. You know, I went to Laker games, saw LeBron score a three point shot. I was just like, this is awesome. I haven't paid for any of this. Um, So I definitely think it is incredible. And I will say you do just get to work with the brightest people in the world. It's such a competitive industry. And like, you'll know this yourself. It's so nice to be in a room, just brainstorming ideas and have that quality of contribution where everyone is saying something like super interesting and on point. And I'm not saying that happens every single time, but I, I wouldn't work in any other industry. I, I really couldn't. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the perks, like I watched a documentary one time and uh, I think the the lady in question in on that YouTube video was talking about, she Notice the red flags when the perks started to reduce. Like there was no longer beer on tap. <laughs> the free coffee went away. There were yep. less trip trips. So probably if you're in tech, uh, you might want to like, you know, 
jump ship if, if that starts to happen. <laughs> That's if you don't have any shares to vest. But what did, you, what did you do specifically in tech? Because you went to the London School of Economics. Did you code? What Did you learn how to code? Or what was your role like in those yeah. different companies? It's funny because I didn't actually write a single line of code until I'd, I quit my job at Hotel Tonight in 2016 and decided to start my own company. Um, I mean, obviously, when we were younger, when we were kids, we all played around with HTML and CSS on sites like MySpace and, and stuff like that. But I mean, real kind of like backend Ruby stuff. I never really did until um, I'd already been working in tech for many, many years. So with my... Um, economics background, I guess it was very easy for me to say I had a lot of like commercial skills, commercial acumen. Um, so my roles have always focused on strategy, business mm. development. Um, my very first role at Groupon was a role that kind of sat between operations and account management. So like on the one part, it was like strategic kind of stuff, operational stuff. And then on the other part, it was just relationships, you know, communication skills, writing a lot of emails, making a lot of calls. Um, when I was Which at a Amazon... Lot of engineers don't happen to have. Well, a lot of previous engineers. <laughs> now engineers can do it all. Like I, I just saw a Senegalese engineer who won like Miss... She won Miss California or something. Oh, wow. She's like 22. She's a beauty queen. She's black. She's like six feet two. She's an engineer. I like, damn, like, who's got to compete with that? Like, yeah, work it. <laughs> not me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I've always just, I've always just leaned on my um, relationship building and communication skills in all of my roles. Mm. Yeah, and you, you talked about starting your own business, Hustle Crew. And from what I understand, it's like a community, and you're trying to improve diversity in tech. Uh, especially, are you focusing on women or are you focusing on people of color or minorities in general? Yeah, so my company started as a community for people like me. I was really frustrated with the barriers I was facing to advancing my career, to being understood, to being heard. And I started to realize that none of my other friends in tech who just happened to be white guys could really relate to it or understand it. Um, and I, I started with a focus really on women and women of color. Um, but the idea really is to be as intersectional as possible and be mindful of all identities which are underrepresented, which in tech is pretty much all of them, whether that's disabled, LGBTI, uh, LGBTQIA+. But I think when you're a community leader, just by virtue of who you are, people are just going to gravitate towards you. Like one of the first mm. people that ever signed up to the mailing list was just another Nigerian woman also working in tech, living in the UK. And it would be remiss of me to say that you know that you know my my identity and my experiences don't shape the identity and brand of the company absolutely of course they do but the way that i make money you know my actual business model is i work with ceos and ctos who want well, you to have under access look at that <laughs> who want to understand structural oppression because we don't learn about this at school we don't learn about this at university so they want to understand what structural oppression is they want to understand bias, how to mitigate bias, and they want to understand all the different forms of discrimination all the way down to microaggressions. How many, so how that many they, CEOs are actually willing to do the work without being a PR stunt? How many of yeah. them actually just say, you know what, just talk to the to the head of human resources and organizing. <laughs> how many of them actually like, okay, you know what, come to my office, sit me down, talk to me about this thing, like a Jack Dorsey kind of yeah, I mean, I would probably say that like the size of my company and the size of the industry, there aren't there aren't that many 
entrepreneurs like myself who work on this full time. And I think that is indicative of the demand. You know, if if there were so many people that wanted to know more about discrimination and how how to, you know, fight against it in their company and build better cultures, then there would be diversity and inclusion companies falling out of our ears, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the fact that they're, they're really just, you know, a handful of us, especially in this space, I think shows that it's it's still a very, very early, uh, early stage market. And it's also a very complex problem in that it, it, its relation to commercials and the bottom line still isn't clear enough for many mm. leaders. And so they still don't feel the urgency that, let's say, an underrepresented person who has felt excluded at work or even gone as far as quitting the industry altogether, which is reported in a lot of cases. Um, you know, the leadership haven't felt the problem as acutely as these underrepresented people. Got it, got it. I mean, we're starting to see roles like chief diversity officer uh, spring up at all these companies. So I guess, you know, like you said, slowly, but possibly surely. Let me ask you a question about starting a business. Now, having your own business, and this is something I hope to do, you know, sometime in the future, like what percentage do you think, how much ignorance do you need to have and how much wokeness do you need to have to start a business? Some people say you just need to be totally ignorant because if you go in there knowing all the problems and challenges of having your own business, you probably won't start your business. Some <laughs> people say, oh, no, you need to be aware of certain things and how the game is played in that particular climate. Mm. On a percentage scale, um, how many points will you allocate to ignorance? How many points do you allocate to wokeness uh, in starting a business? Mm, that's a really good question. I mean, in my case, with the kind of work I do, you know, I'm not trying to like invent a new type of rocket fuel to get us to Jupiter or whatever. Um, So, um, you know, because I'm not doing something that's like deeply, deeply technical and requiring a lot of, of a lot of R and D research and development, then I would say probably like 50, 50, if not, if not even less on the wokeness front, because what I observe a lot in underrepresented founders, I'm talking like about women, I'm talking about black women, we hold ourselves back from doing anything because we stay, mm. we get stuck in the hypothetical and we get stuck in the research. And, you know, I wrote a medium post about this. I wish I started my business a year ago, two years ago, three years earlier than I had, because there are so many things that you're not going to learn until you're doing it. You can do Facts. all the research you want. You can do all the modeling you want, Facts. but you just don't know what it's like until you're actually there. And so for that reason, I'm kind of leaning towards just like running into it blindly because real life data that you gather, that firsthand evidence is always going to be way more useful than your textbook. But you do it so gracefully. You make it seem easy. And I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree that, you know, sometimes you just have to jump into it. I can relate in a way from starting this podcast, like a bunch of my you know earlier episodes were horrible. It's not like I've actually like reached the pinnacle or anything, but I got to learn over the one year plus I've been doing this. So I guess it'll be like almost the same thing for business. Um, Definitely. In your line of work, do you think diversity has actually become better? than say, I don't know, what's a pivotal point? And since the dot-com crash, I don't know. Uh, so 20 industry. years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have any, I've never really looked at data sets from, from the Perception beginning. Perception-wise, not just... But, but yeah, sets. so I think, mm. I would say that change is happening at a glacial pace, mm. like very 
very slowly. The number of women participating in the industry has kind of been stagnant around 20%, pretty much. And I think you need to look a bit deeper and just say, let's not just look at whether women are in the industry. Let's look at where they are in the industry, right? Because it doesn't matter if all of us are, are sitting around in the customer services team, but not actually in product design or engineering or in sales or building partnerships or in the board. So I... I'm really disappointed. I'm really disappointed with the progress on on representation and diversity. And I I, I don't want to like pretend it's it's a rosy picture. I think at a grassroots level, more attention is being made, and that's incredible. But grassroots only has so much influence to drive lasting change. Like real mm. lasting change has to come top down. And like top you down. know, people at the top are saying it, but they're not doing it. And that mm. to me is incredibly frustrating. Why do you think we need to make them? You think we just need to prove the economics of it? Like because Sometimes it might be difficult to appeal to the emotional side or the... Legislation. Mm, I think sense. legislation. I think if we look at the UK, uh, gender pay gap reporting came in in um, where companies with more than 200 employees had to basically say, like, how much are the men earning? How much are the women earning? It was really mm. interesting to see how many companies approached me to work with uh, Hustle Crew after that started. I want to see companies being forced by government to be transparent about disparities in wages along every identity trait. So male and female, black and white and Asian, able, disabled, parents, not parents, old versus young, college degrees, no college degrees. I think until Wait, Parents and not parents, is that a thing? Yeah, because a lot of people struggle to return to work, mothers in particular, oh, you know, when they then try to come back to work, companies bully them into taking lower, lower responsibility, lower compensation packages than women that didn't go on maternity leave and, and, and didn't leave the company. And I think that it seems very unfair that people should face a penalty for ultimately contributing to the economy just in a different way. Um, so yeah, I think uh, the only thing that's really going to change it is legislation. Got it. Got it. I mean, you're, you're definitely doing the large work and, you know, I'm really proud of you making lasting change in, you know, whatever you're doing. Unlike people like me that just talk all day on the microphone. You're I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> making impact. But besides Hustle Crew, you know, you, you have a book, obviously, and, you know, you have a podcast with Michael Tekish that you mentioned earlier. You want to talk about those real quick? Uh, what, yes. what made you write the book? Okay. And, okay. Yeah. I'll just allow you to explain. <laughs> so um, once I started putting myself out there on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, sharing my work, uh, advocating for greater diversity in tech, I found that all of these people would come out the woodwork, Abadesi, you know, I'm studying computer science, I want to be an engineer, or Abadesi, I'm in law, but I want to switch into tech. And they would often ask me the same questions. How do I find a mentor? What's the right job for me in tech? How do I deal with rejection? How do I negotiate my salary? And I just suddenly thought, you know, just like we do when we're building in companies, how do I make this scalable, right? It, mm. it doesn't make sense for me to just have the same conversation over and over and over again. And that's why I wrote the book. And, you know, I encourage everyone out there to write a book because it's so easy now. You just go on Amazon Direct Publishing, upload your PDF, and boom, making money. No upfront costs other that's than your it? time. So, so your book is digital or do you have paper? Oh, I have a paperback. I have a paperback right here. Um, I tried to buy it. I tried to buy it to read it for this episode, actually, but it's not available in the U.S. What? For some reason. Yeah, you might want to look into it. I'm going 
going to send you a link. I'm going to send you a link. I'm going to send you a link. It definitely should be. Um, I will look into that. But um, yeah, it's on Kindle. It's on Kindle. But yeah, so that's that's why I wrote the book. And then with Techish, um, yeah, please, if you like podcasts, definitely check ours out. Hashtag Techish on Twitter as well. But the idea was how can we have a podcast that's talking about startup culture, talking about the tech industry that isn't another white guy in Silicon Valley? Mm. Um, and that was really what it was about because we wanted to not only discuss the news, but we also wanted to discuss how it impacts us and how it impacts our communities. You know, you look at a tool like Twitter, um, you know, Twitter doesn't have like 30% black people, probably not yet, but at the same time, black Twitter drives so much of its influence in society. (laughs) So yeah, that's really what Techish is about. And oh, I just would love to plug the fact that we're actually doing a a live event at the end of May with uh, a WhatsApp engineer. He's going to talk to us about what it's like to be black engineer at whatsapp and how he broke in and what he's learning there so yeah please please come along and check it out I mean, if there's any app that deserves a black engineer it's whatsapp with the way our, our african mothers are on that am app. i right but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well you guys really need to check out you know techish and whatever you t- you to your virtual event you know your book your podcast i have all the links in the description so you guys can just click on that they do it so brilliantly like it's not nerdy and it's not pop culture it's like in between like it's fantastic and like michael i'm a big fan of michael and if you guys notice that oh i'm not my usual self in this episode and no say you're not asking those questions you usually ask or you're not as comfortable that's because i'm a little starstruck because i listen to oh. you know <laughs> but you. um last question what would you advise what advice would you give to a younger version of yourself so there's someone currently there's a 20-year-old girl now at the London at the Stockholm School of Political Science somewhere. Yeah. Coming out of school, you came out to the financial crisis. She's coming out to COVID, having her virtual graduation on Zoom, and mm. she's looking at the next 10 years of her life in tech, and she is an underrepresented woman of color. What mm. advice will you give her? I think what I would say to her is, be willing to take risks in your career if they are risks that really align with your values and don't 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 worry about what people tell you about you know how it could go wrong because at that age really there are so many opportunities there are so many possibilities and i really really love that quote from steve jobs you can only connect the dots looking backwards mm. you know no matter what you do at the start you know just be bold and take risks and the other thing i'd say is just like I feel like so many times when I was younger, just as a result of being like a black woman in a mostly white male working environment, I bit my lips so many times or I just I just took took the flack that I shouldn't. And I just wish I could tell my younger self, like, don't bite your tongue. If people are being if people are chatting nonsense, say it. You know what I mean? Like if people are being ridiculous, say it. Don't placate them. Don't be the nice person. Like have your voice and express it and use it. Use your voice, use your voice. So yeah, that's what I would say. Got it. Find your voice and use your voice. Well, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. If it's, is it okay if I name this episode Techish? Oh, please. Go oh, for the culture. It. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Big <laughs> <right>. it up. <laughs> let's see. Let, let's draw some, some, audi- some audience listeners from you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go for it. <laughs> Go for it. But th- gotta... Thank you very much uh, for coming on the podcast. Uh, I, I usually like to give my guests a couple of minutes to like, I, I guess you've already, you know, plugged what you want to plug, but if, you know, you want to speak to your future self, is there's, if there's a question I didn't ask you, if you have a question for me, uh, whatever you want to do uh, during the last minutes of the episode. Yeah, I guess for people just kind of returning to that question of starting a business, I think a lot of the times what stops us from starting a business is that we're focusing on the vision of what we want to achieve 
almost at the point where our company might have already been five or 10 years old. And it's so difficult to know where to start if you're focusing on, on what your company could be after you've done five or 10 or even 20 years of work. So if you're really struggling to go from idea to sharing something with the public, my advice would be, how can you create the smallest possible version of the solution you want to build. Like think about the problem you want to address, the problem you want to solve, and think about the smallest possible version of what that solution could be. And then start with that because probably the first idea that's in your mind is something that's just too far away and it's going to take too much resource and too much time to build. So just scale it down, go really, really, really small. And then with that first, first thing you share with the public, try to start validating your assumptions and go from there. Well said. Well said. Uh, thank you for inspiring all of us. Uh, we hope to be a business person like you when we grow up. We hope to be <laughs> well informed as well spoken as you are when we grow up. We hope to be a better. We hope to be better podcasters just like you Yay. when we grow up. So thank you so much, Abadesi, and you guys have been listening. To, you want to drop your social media handles? Oh yeah, please. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to me today, you want to stay connected. Follow me, um, Abadesi. I'm the only Abadesi, as I know, A-B-A-D-E-S-I. So I've got that handle pretty much everywhere. Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. I'll see you there. Yeah, and she responds, like, follow her right now. Because once she starts her second or third company, like, you won't hear from her again. You know, once she raises <laughs> a few million dollars. But <laughs> all right, guys, there's also Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Uh, Culture Class Pod on Twitter. Send us an email, culturalclasspodcast at gmail.com. If you want us to connect you with Abadesi, again, go down to the description and click all those links and see what Abadesi and Michael are up to. Yay. All right, guys, have a great day. Bye.